week, we began a new series entitled Crooked Branches. And if you weren't here last week for the beginning of this sermon series, I have bad news for you. We had some technical difficulties, and the sermon did not record. So, <coughs> there's a manuscript. There is a manuscript. That's good. All right. But moving forward, what we're doing in this series is taking a look at some historical narratives that capture some very fascinating moments in the lives of the children of Abraham. And the essence of the entire Old Covenant is the unfolding and fulfillment of God's promises to the children of Abraham. Now, one of those promises, one of great importance, is the promised land. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham, and tells him, go to a land that I will show you. To your descendants, I will give this land. Well, everything rocked along for a while, and then one slight problem. In fact, it wasn't so slight. It was a rather large hiccup. This people of Israel, these descendants of Abraham, became slaves to the Egyptians. It seemed like this promise of owning this land, this promised land flowing with milk and honey, it seemed afar off. It seemed as if God was not going to fulfill this promise, because after all, they're enslaved to the Egyptians. But after about 400 or so years enslaved, after, after being enslaved, God made good on his word, raised up his servant Moses to redeem his people, to rescue them out of slavery with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, and brings them into the promised land. Well, on the way, on the way to the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies into the land to check things out, bring back some fruit, give a report. Well, when they spied out the land, they realized, wow, these guys are really big. And it just seems impossible for us to conquer them and take their land from them. So they come back to report what they had seen. And ten of the spies give this bad report, give this very discouraging report. Oh my gosh, those guys are huge. There's no way that we can defeat them. Two of the spies, however, named Caleb and Joshua, they had faith. They believed that even though this seemed impossible for God, all things are possible for God, especially if he promises them he will be faithful to his word, and thus they had faith. They believed, and they were commended for it. But about the rest of the people, the rest of the people who listened to those ten spies, who gave a bad report, they were all discouraged. They didn't believe. They lacked faith. And of them, God said, they will not enter the land. They will not enter the rest. They will not receive the inheritance. In fact, this entire generation will wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they will die in the wilderness before entering the land because they did not believe. But my servants Caleb and Joshua, who believed, they will be the only ones from this generation who enter into this land, enter into my rest and see my promise fulfilled in the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Now this morning, we're going to take a look at the beginning of the fulfillment of this land conquest, a very fascinating and fun story. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. Now, Joshua, is uh, the book is named after Joshua, one of those two faithful, believing spies. And 
just before they come to the land, just before they enter into the land, Moses, who was leading the people, died. Just as God said he would. Just as God said that he and the rest of that generation would not enter into the land. Well, upon Moses' death, God raised up Joshua, who was Moses' aide, to be the leader of the people. To lead these people into the land in conquest. And as you turn there, I'll go ahead and just kind of uh, let you know, if, if you're interested in more on Joshua and this whole land conquering experience and, and, and everything that this foreshadows, prefigures, there's a whole lot more to it that I'm not going to cover today. We did a sermon series a while back entitled Old School Jesus. And if you want to go further, if you want to go deeper, if you're interested in knowing more, grab one of these discs, listen to the message on Joshua as a type of Christ. Very fascinating stuff. But not really going into all that this morning. We're going to cover uh, more about the uh, the narrative of their entrance into the land and see how God fulfilled his promise. So in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll, we'll read through the text together and at different spots we'll kind of break it down and make some commentary and uh, draw out some application. So Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go! Look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So Israel had this habit of sending spies to check things out before they go there. So he sent, sent two spies. They went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, put yourself in Rahab's shoes. What do you do right here? What do you do right here? You've got these spies who came from a foreign land, and they're in your house, and the king sends word to have those men brought out. What do you do? Do you hide the spies? Do you help them? Or do you obey the decree of your king? What do you do? Let's just be real about who these spies are real quick, okay? They are your enemy. They're your enemy. They came from elsewhere with the intent of coming to your land, defeating you, and taking your land from you to possess it as their own. That's who these men are. That should make your decision very easy, right? <laughs> Give up the enemy who came to destroy you and take your land, and obey your king, right? That's the easy answer. That's the obvious answer, right? Well, let's keep reading and see what Rahab does. In verse 4, we read, But the woman, that is Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But... Verse 6, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So, the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Alright, so we see her choice. She lied. She deceived her own people. She said, oh yeah, those men that came to me. I didn't know where they came from. And just, you know, just before the city gates were closed, they left. They, they exited the city. If you hurry, you might be able to catch a goat. She deceived them. She deceived her own people. 
And if we were to kind of assess this woman, Rahab, and kind of sketch out her character, we, we'd probably, in all objectivity, say, she's got some serious strikes against her. Okay? Number one, she's introduced to us as a prostitute. Strike one. Furthermore, she's aiding, assisting, helping spies from a foreign land, the enemy. She's a traitor to her own country. Treason. Strike two. She's deceptive. She lies. Yeah, I know. I don't know where these men came from. I, I sent them off just before the city gates closed. Hurry, you may go. You might find them. She lied. She was deceptive. Liar. Strike three. Prostitute. Traitor. Liar. Three strikes. Let's keep reading. Verse eight. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So Rahab explains her actions. She gives a reason for her treason. Her reason? The fame of Yahweh, the God of Israel. God's fame. She had heard of God's mighty acts. She had heard of how God opened up the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross through on dry ground. And then after they came through, how God, through his people, destroyed Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites. She heard about all that. Her people heard about all that. And their hearts were melting in fear. They lost courage because of that. The reason for her treason... The fame and glory of God. And not just any God, not just some idol of wood or stone, but the God who is God in heaven above and on earth below, Yahweh himself, the God of all wonders beyond our universe, the creator God of all gods. That's why she deceived her own people. That's why she hid the spies and sent the pursuers off in another direction. That's why she committed treason. We see in Rahab a heart of faith. A heart of faith. I mean, she heard of these things, right? She heard of God parting the Red Sea. She heard of the Exodus. She heard of what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. She heard of what God and the Israelites, because of God, did to Sion and Achim and the Amorites. She heard of them. And, and how did she respond? I mean, she could have responded with, well, yeah, you know, I wasn't there to witness the parting of the Red Sea. So, I mean, we don't know for certain that that really happened. I mean, you know. Maybe it did, but I, don't, I didn't see it. I mean, I didn't see the defeat of the Amorites. I mean, I heard about it. Yeah, somebody said that it happened, but how do I know that their word is true? I mean, you know, over history, I mean, people distort things. I mean, you know, people could have made that stuff up. I, you know. And, and yeah, I mean, I heard that the Israelites are going to come here and, and, and take our city from us, but I haven't seen that happen yet. I mean, 
I haven't seen any of this, so how do I know that it's true? She could have responded to what she heard with unbelief, with a hard heart. But she didn't. She responded in faith. She believed. And we see her faith in action. Okay? Living faith. Faith that she put into action, and we see this through her choice. She had a choice to be either loyal to her king and her people, or loyal to the Israel of God and the God of Israel. And she chose the better path. She chose the better path. Had she chosen to be loyal to her king and to her own people, gave up the spies, she would have perished with her people. But because she believed and because her actions reflected that faith and she aided the spies and was loyal to the Israel of God and the God of Israel, she was saved. She recognizes that her salvation lies in her connection with Yahweh to the people of Yahweh. Okay? Keep reading. Verse 12. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Rahab's pleading with these people. Hey, I'm, I'm helping you guys out. Now swear to me that you'll help me out. I mean, I know God is going to destroy us and give you our land. So help me out. Save me and my family. She continues. Give me a sure sign. Verse 13. That you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. And that you will save us from Death. Again, Rahab recognizes that her salvation lies in her connection to God, to Yahweh, to the people of Yahweh. Her salvation is the result of her faith. Verse 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you'll tell what we're doing... We will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Now look at the certainty in these spies. Look at the faith reflected in the words of these spies. They didn't say, well, if God does give us the land. No, they said, when God gives us this land. Our lives for your life, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when Yahweh gives us this land. Verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the window. For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hill so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath that you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go out into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window, which was an action reflective of her now turn over to chapter 6. Between now and chapter 6, we've got the Israelites crossing the Jordan on dry ground, very similar to what happened with the Red Sea. And then we've got 
the men of Israel who were not yet circumcised being circumcised, and then God gave them time to heal in preparation of conquering this land of Jericho. And then in chapter 6, here we go. This is where the plot thickens. This is where we see things get ramped up and revved up, and God began to fulfill this land promise. Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a long shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now, this is not the kind of battle strategy that you would expect to see. I mean, maybe, maybe you'd expect to see Joshua pull out a map of the city and then start to get all strategic with it. You know, some super secret spy agent tactic. I mean, you know, all right, a third of you guys, led by you, you go around the east side, okay? Okay? You guys, the rest of you, you're right there, okay? You guys scale the wall right by Rahab's house. That's a part of the city wall. You climb up that scarlet cord, and you guys pursue over the wall. And the rest of us are going to go around the west side. No, we don't see that, right? I mean, there's a multitude of ways that they could have done this. Strategic ways. I mean, how about let's, you know, light some lanterns on fire and throw them over the city wall and just burn the place down. How about, you know, we pull a snake attack. I mean, we could Trojan horse this joint, right? I mean, what? I mean, there's a multitude of ways. But what do we have here? We've got Mission Impossible, literally. Like, this literally sounds impossible. It sounds preposterous. It sounds ridiculous. I mean, really, Joshua? You want us to march, just march on this? Blow some trumpets. Right? Like day one, you just march around, don't do it, and just okay, day two, march around again. Right? Six days of this. Okay? And then the seventh day, we're gonna like do it seven times and then shout and then the walls are gonna fall down. Right. It's really gonna work. <coughs> Sounds bizarre. Sounds impossible. But it's what God decreed. And if you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that it seems that God delights in doing that which seems impossible. It seems that God delights in doing that which is bizarre and preposterous, that which sounds ridiculous. And he seems to do it for his glory, to make a name for himself. For God can do the impossible. So we keep reading, verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. But Joshua did it. He obeyed this bizarre plan. But that shouldn't surprise us. After all, Joshua, son of Nun, was one of the two spies that spied out the land along with the other eleven. And he believed that God would defeat these men who made them seem as grasshoppers in their sight. He believed that as preposterous as it sounded, God would give them the land. And so now, when God is prescribing the means by which they will do it, he responds in kind, with faith. He believes. 
believe that no matter what, God would do what he said he would do, even if it sounds impossible. And that, my friends, is what required faith. Ordinary doesn't require a whole lot of faith. Okay? You see something happening, it, just, it seems ordinary, doesn't require much faith. To believe that a boomer or a best is going to have another kid doesn't require a whole lot of faith. To believe that a barren woman is going to have a kid requires a lot of faith. That's not ordinary. That's extraordinary. Okay? Now, the results of usual or uh, expected methods can either be explained away or attributed to the strength of man. But the results of unusual methods or the miraculous are hard to attribute. Man. It's difficult to give man the glory that God deserves. God does the seemingly impossible to make a name for himself, for his glory. And that's exactly what we see going on right here. Verse 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So you have the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. And then they did this for six days. Fulfilled it to the T, just as God said. Now can you imagine? Imagine being a citizen of Jericho while all this was going on. Alright? So you've already heard about the God of Israel and what he did to the Egyptians. How he opened the Red Sea and the people crossed them on a dry ground and how he destroyed the Egyptians in the sea and how they defeated the Amorites, the kings. You've heard about all this and your hearts are melting with fear and you hear that they're on their way to take your land from you. And you knew that they already sent spies to spy out the land. And so you're thinking, okay, any day now it's going down. Any day they're coming to storm the city. Any day we're doomed. And you hear march footsteps. They're not saying anything. And you're thinking, what are you thinking? They march around the whole city. And they do it once. And then they go camp out. And you're thinking... I mean, really? You're like, okay, well, maybe they left. No, nope, next day they come back, marching around the city again. They're not saying anything, they're just marching. You hear footsteps. What are you thinking about this? I know, I'd be pretty scared. And then on the seventh day, you're thinking, okay, I see the pattern here, they're going to march around and leave. Nope, they keep marching around seven times, trumpets blasting, shouts, and then boom. On the seventh day, verse 15, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute 
and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. Here we see that the Israelites were faithful to keep their word to Rahab the prostitute. They kept their end of the bargain. She kept her end of the bargain, gathered the people into her house, tied the scarlet cord from her window as a sign. The rest of Jericho perishes, but because of her faith, she and her family are Safe. Now, recall those strikes that Rahab had against her, right? Prostitute, traitor, liar, deceiver. Right? Well, there's a couple passages in the New Testament that actually mention Rahab. Okay, go ahead and turn to one of those with me. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Right? Remember, Rahab introduced to us as a prostitute. She committed treason. She hid spies from foreign territory. Wasn't faithful to her own country. And then she lied, deceived, and sent the pursuers off in a different direction. But notice that in the New Testament, we don't find Rahab condemned for prostitution, condemned for treason, or condemned for deceit. What we have is Rahab commended for her faith. In Hebrews chapter 1, this entire chapter is devoted to explaining the beauty and the importance of the virtue of faith. Faith is one virtue that is consistently commended throughout the scriptures. All right, Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So faith is... You know, you don't have it in your hand right now. You don't see it, but you believe that you will. So this chapter opens up defining faith, and then it goes on to say, hey, this is what the ancients were commended for. And then the rest of the chapter is about ancient after ancient after ancient, example after example after example from the Old Testament of people who had faith. And Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You catch that? You want to please God? Believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you keep reading down, you've got example after example, and look what example makes this hall of faith. Verse 30. By faith, which is the theme throughout here, by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did that. By faith, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched or marched around them for seven days. That's my Irish accent. <laughs> verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she woke... I mean, why do they got to introduce her like that? <laughs> by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies was not killed along with those who were disobedient, or if you have a footnote, or unbelief. Faith. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is being sure of what we do not have yet, confident of what we do not see. That's what they were commended for. And look at this shining example of this story in Joshua 2 and 6. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around them. For seven days. You can bet. I will bet. I will bet money. Everything I have 
that if the Israelites did not believe God and said, you know what, let's just Trojan horse it, they would have failed. They would have perished. They would have been routed by Jericho. Promise But by faith, they believed that God would do the seemingly impossible, the unexpected, the bizarre, the preposterous, the crazy. That's what God decreed, and it's what they believed, and God was faithful. Rahab, the prostitute, because she believed, was commended for her faith. She aided the spies, believing that God would do what he said he would do, how he said he would do it. Then there's another passage in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, it's James chapter 2, verse 25. It says, in the same way, this is just to give you some context, it talks about the importance of uh, deeds and faith and how they work together and how our faith is reflected in our actions. So first James gives the example of Abraham, and then he goes on to say, in the same way as Abraham, was not even Rahab the prostitute? That's how she just has to be introduced like that. Even Rahab the prostitute, was she not considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Once again, the New Testament does not condemn Rahab for prostitution or deception or treason. That she she's a prostitute, but it doesn't condemn her for those three strikes. She's commended for her faith. And after all, without faith, possible to God. So, yes, she may have been deceptive, and if you're like me, when you first read that, you wrestle with that a little bit. You're like, well, does God want us to be dishonest people? Well, here's the bottom line. When it comes right down to it, Rahab feared God more than she feared man. Okay? That's what it all comes down to. I believe that there's a timeless precept here that we can apply to our own lives, and it has to do with loyalty. Where is our loyalty? Where was Rahab's loyalty? Where should our loyalty lie? I believe that in all things, yes, we should strive to be honest people. We should strive to avoid deceit. We should strive to be loyal to our country and obedient to the governing agents. However... If, like Rahab, we are put into a situation where being honest, being loyal to our country, being obedient to the governing rulers, puts us at odds with God, forces us to be disobedient to God, forces us to be unloyal to God or disloyal to God, forces us to go against God, then at that time, our loyalty must lie in God. We're going to have to choose to be more fearful of God than man. Like Rahab, we must fear God more than man. Now, what is the basis of Rahab's faith? Because that's that's what she's commended for. She's commended for her faith, and without faith it's impossible to please God. So what kind of faith are we talking about? Are we talking about just any kind of faith? Faith in whatever? Faith in whoever? What was her faith rooted in? In what did she place her faith? And what shall be the basis for our faith? While there is a sense in which faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not yet seen, while there is an unseen element to faith, biblical faith is not entirely a blind 
faith. Biblical faith is a reasonable faith that has sufficient grounds and it is rooted in the word of God. Okay? As a basis for her faith, Rahab points to the mighty acts of God. We've heard of what your God did and our hearts are melting with fear because of it. Because we believe that it actually happened. We heard the report and we believe. And my faith, a saving faith, led me to put my faith in action. I will give lodging to the spies. I'll deceive my own people. Because I really believe that God is going to do what he said he would do. My faith is in the word of God. What God said he would do. See, Rahab's faith is not some is not faith in some whimsical idea that she conjured up in her own mind. It's not some arbitrary idea. It's faith in God's word. In the same way, our faith must be grounded in the word of God. Our faith must be rooted in what God has said. We have no reason to believe in some arbitrary idea that we just conjure up in our minds. I have no basis for a faith that says, I believe God's going to give me an A on my math test. I believe that I have enough faith that I'm going to place first in my chess tournament. I have enough faith. I believe that God's going to bring me a tall, dark, handsome man named Daquan. <laughs> I have enough faith. I believe that God is going to make me a millionaire. I have faith. I believe, and without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? So surely God's going to give me these things and do these things for me because I have faith. No, the basis for our faith is the Word of God. Not some arbitrary, whimsical idea that we just conjure up in our minds. <clears throat> the faith that is commended in scriptures is a faith in what God has promised. And the ground for such faith is God's faithful track record. The fact that we can point to God, we can point to history and say, God promised he would do this, and he did. He promised that he would bless Abraham, and he did. He promised that he would make Abraham the father of many nations, and he did. He promised that he would give Abraham's descendants the land flowing with milk and honey, and he did. God promised that he would send his Messiah to restore his people to life, and he did. Faith in those promises is commendable because of their nature. Again, seemingly impossible. These were promises that seemed to be against all odds, right? Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Well, that's seemingly impossible. We've been trying. Wife is bare. Highly unlikely. But God was faithful. And, and the more outlandish, the crazier the promises of God sound, the greater the faith required, right? Again, Abraham, though his wife was barren, 
God gave them children. The Israelites were promised a land. They were supposed to take this land from a people who were ginormous, seemingly impossible, against all odds. But God was faithful to his promise. We can point to God's track record as sufficient grounds for our faith in his word. The promise of the Messiah. Certainly this guy, Jesus, I mean, this is against all odds. This It's not what we expected. Well, God does the unexpected. And the more outlandish, the greater the faith required. They were according to God's word. Though they seemed outlandish, though they seemed bizarre, they were as God decreed. Now, Again, our faith must be rooted in the Word of God. But one thing that I believe that we must come to the Scriptures with is a faith that what God decrees for His people is for their good. We must come to the Scriptures, I believe, with that presupposition. That I mean, I think that we have sufficient grounds to say that. I mean, throughout the Scriptures, we have um, the fact that... Um, God provides over and over and over a pattern of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. In the Old Covenant, we see that um, in a contingent covenant. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we see that the blessings are intrinsic in obedience. Now, God nearly always communicated to his people through his people. Okay? How did God communicate this method, this message of how the Israelites were to take Jericho? Through Joshua. God told Joshua, Joshua told the people, right? That's how God communicated his message to his people, through his people, right? So, the people of Joshua's day had to trust that God's word through Joshua was for their good. That though it seemed outlandish, seemed ridiculous, that was what God prescribed, and that was for their good, and God would fulfill it as he decreed. Well, just as God spoke through Joshua to the people of that day, so also we have in the New Testament Jesus and his words, and the inspired apostles and their writings. And while those words were not spoken directly to us or written directly to us, there are timeless precepts in those texts that are true authoritative and applicable for you and I in our lives today. We can have faith that what God's word prescribes is for our good. What God's word says about marriage is for our good. What God's word says about stewardship is for our good. What God's word says about sexuality is for our good. What God's word says about relationships is for our good. And it would behoove us to walk accordingly. We're called to believe God. And just as Abraham and Rahab walked according to their faith, they lived a life that displayed their faith, you and I have an opportunity to do the same thing. If we truly believe that what God says is for our good, then if we walk according to his precepts, we have an opportunity to exercise our faith, put our faith into action, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. We want to live a life that is pleasing to God? Walk according to His precepts. 
as a display of your faith that says, I believe that this is for my good, and I believe that you said it, thus I will walk accordingly. Now the scriptures speak of Rahab's faith as a saving faith. She believed, and rather than perishing with her people, she was saved due to her belief in God, her connection to God through the people of God. Well, in the same way, you and I can exercise a saving faith. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Our rescue from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin, which is separation from God, our reconciliation to God, the atonement for our sins, and the restored relationship that we have with God, us being rescued out of death and being brought to life, out of darkness and into life, our salvation is a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, whose precious Precious blood atoned for our sins and reconciled us to a holy God. Blaise Pascal, and this is a, a quote that's right there in your bulletin on the inside in the outline, uh, just in case you want to read along with this. It's kind of a wordy quote, but it's beautiful if you've never heard it. It's beautiful if you have heard it. It's beautiful either way. Let's read this beautiful quote. <laughs> Who's a 17th century French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Christian philosopher. I mean, he really didn't do much, but he said something cool. <laughs> Belief is a wise wager. <clears throat> Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then, without hesitation, that he exists. If you believe and God doesn't exist, what have you lost? Really? But if you don't believe, what have you missed out on? Everything. I mean, Rahab understood this, right? If she believed God and gave lodging to the spies, deceived her own people, and sent the pursuers off in another direction, and then the Israelites came against the people, and the people put the whoop up on Israel, what did she lose? Nothing. But if she didn't believe, and if she gave up the spies and said, you know what, my king said that I need to bring these spies out, so you know what, hey guys, sorry dude, I gotta obey the king. She would have perished with her people. But because she had faith, exercised that faith, put that faith into action, she was rescued. She gained salvation. And we can do sermon series after sermon series after sermon series on all kinds of biblical texts, all kinds of precepts, all kinds of uh, doctrines, all kinds of virtues, but one virtue that seems to stand above all, one virtue that is consistently commended throughout the scriptures, for, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, in the Old Covenant Age, in the New Covenant Age, one virtue that is highly commendable is that of faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we are called above all to be people of faith. We're called to be believers. And the Christian life can be summed up very simply, very succinctly, in Galatians 5 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. 
So let us be people of faith. Let us be believers. But without faith, it is impossible. Please God. Let's please God. Amen? Amen.